Thank you, Diane. Well, you'll find a, an outline on, in your book um, on that third page there, so um, that would be good to, uh, to have ready. I heard about a question on a police cadet exam um, uh, just last week. The question went something like this. Imagine you're on the beat um, and, uh, you know, just walking around and you notice a fire in a house with people inside screaming for help. But just then, a car swerves and breaks suddenly because of the thick smoke and it skids and rolls over and ends upside down in a fast-flowing river. And in the ensuing confusion of the stopped traffic, you notice that the most wanted criminal in the country jumps out of a car and races across an oval. What do you do? That was the question. Well, there were lots of answers from the police cadets, but the most, but the shortest one was, take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> do you ever feel like that? That sometimes you want to take off your Christian identity and its responsibilities and just mingle with the crowd? There is discouragement that comes our way so easily, isn't there? There is much which seems to drain us of our joy, uh, that fills us with despair, so much to make us lose our heart for keeping on in the Christian life and ministry. There is a doubt that God loves me. There is the disappointment I feel at my sin. There's the discouragement as I get older and I can't serve as I would love to. There's the, the, the difficulty of serving people, whether it's in my family or in my church or in my community, when they just take you for granted. There's the veiled criticism you hear on the grapevine one day about the way that that last women's event went and you were on the committee. There's the cold shoulder or the distance you feel when you talk about your church or your relationship with Jesus with your hostile family or friends. We work so hard, but we see so little fruit as we serve in ministry. A woman that we have seen come to the Lord falls away and stops taking our phone calls when we try to get in touch with her. And we lose heart and we want to give up. And we ask, why? Why is this so hard? Why do I fail? Why am I so discouraged? I'll stay a Christian, but I want to sit over here and do nothing and keep my mouth shut, and that way I won't get hurt. So it's good to know that the Apostle Paul faced similar joys and griefs in his life and ministry. In the book of 2 Corinthians, we get a glimpse of Paul struggling with failure and weakness. Where did that discouragement and that disappointment come from? Well, here in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul literally battling for his ministry. Some newcomers have arrived in Corinth and they've infiltrated the church. They like to call themselves ministers or apostles like him, but they really didn't deserve those titles. Paul referred to them as those who market God's message for profit. 
You can see that in chapter 2, verse 17. They were hawking a diluted, weak message, making a profit from the Corinthians. They were teaching the Corinthians several things. And now here, I need to... Hey, got it right. Um, they were teaching the, the Corinthians several uh, several things. That Paul's theology was an error. Paul is wrong, they were saying. They were teaching uh, them that the old covenant of Moses was still in force. All its rituals and rules had to be still obeyed and followed. We can see that in chapter 3. They were teaching that Paul was not a legitimate minister or apostle because he did not have a great mystic or spectacular charismatic gifts and abilities like they had. So as these news, as these newcomers, these peddlers had triumphantly taken the Corinthian church by storm, Paul was elsewhere preaching the gospel. And in his absence, they criticised him. But the rumours of those accusations had reached him. And he also heard of the way that the Corinthians were, were believing them. And that hurt him. Well, what were these criticisms? We don't read a list of them in the letter. But reading between the lines as he wrote, they were probably things like this. Paul's deceptive. He uses trickery to convert people, to to turn people to this new message. Uh, Paul's unsuccessful. Many Jews just don't get what he's talking about. It's gobbledygook to them, especially that stuff about the Old Testament law was no longer important and there was a new way of knowing God. So no wonder few people are joining the church. They said that he was weak and unimpressive. Rather than stepping forward and being powerful and commanding attention and charming the crowds, he'd been beaten up and imprisoned. He'd been run out of town on many occasions. He was a nobody. And the fourth thing they were saying was that he was mad. He's out of his mind. He's a crackpot, crazy man. So you can see why Paul is really under the gun. He's copying it from every direction. There are lots of questions and doubts buzzing through his mind. Paul is battling for his very identity as an apostle here. But how does that help us? We're not apostles. We're not in Corinth. We're not in full-time ministry. What does 2 Corinthians 4 have to say to us? Well, Paul is different to us, yet he's also the same. We are Christian like he was. We live our lives in a a hostile world, like he did. We suffer because we are Christian, like he did. We get disappointed, like he did. We get criticised, like he did. We feel weak, like he did. We get confused, like he did. We wonder how God is at work, like he did. And so the question we want to know the answer to is, how do I keep going on living for Christ? How do I put one foot after another, day after day, in the face of such discouragement? How do I keep calm and carry on? Now, in this passage, we get to see what Paul did, what made Paul tick in the circumstances that he faced. He gives reasons why it's happening 
and solutions to keep going. And they grew out of his doctrine about what he knew about God. So our task for this morning is to see how Paul deals with that disappointment and discouragement and what we can learn from that. So how does Paul not give up? How does he keep calm and not give up? And I reckon, you know, as I read this chapter, that that temptation has crossed Paul's mind. I want to give up, crawl over into that little sleepy village on the Mediterranean, get a job making tents, find a nice little church to go to, and I'll be rid of all this discouraging, demoralizing ministry. How do I know it's crossed his mind? Because in verse 1, in our passage here, he says, Therefore... We do not give up. It's crossed his mind, all right. And now he's going to tell us how he beat that temptation. So he, this verse starts, therefore. Therefore is very important in the Bible text. It tells us something important is coming. And it also tells us that the reason for the what has just come before. Uh, A clue that I often teach the women in my Bible study groups to in understanding the Bible is whenever you see a therefore, always ask, what is it there for? Got that? So what's this therefore, therefore? What is it about this ministry? Because that's what he said. Since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. He says... um, What is it about this ministry that prods him to not give up or to lose heart? So for that, you need to look at what has just come before. Because the ministry that God has called him to, you'll see it in chapter 3, is the glorious ministry of the new covenant. It's the ministry that God has promised and then fulfilled in Jesus. It's the ministry of veils being lifted from darkened minds. It's the ministry of freedom because the Spirit is working in people's hearts. It's the ministry of being changed bit by bit into the likeness of the Son. And more importantly, it is a ministry that lasts to the end, a ministry that perseveres. It doesn't fade away. So, if that doesn't fade away, if the ministry doesn't fade away, why should he fade away? You don't turn your back on glory. You see, for Paul, the ministry, the gospel, is God's ministry, God's gospel. It's given to him... Only through mercy, you see that in verse 1, not because he's particularly good at it. And they can throw all the temptations, all the accusations at him that they like, but if the work of ministry is done by God, then there's no need for him to give up. He will press on. He begins the next sentence, verse 2, with instead. Now what would you expect him to say? Instead, I'm encouraged. Instead, I'll keep going. Instead, good things are happening. Now, he doesn't say that. He says, instead, he says, we do not give up. Instead, I'm going to get on with ministry and make sure I honor and please God in my ministry. You see, he says there, instead, we've renounced secret and shameful things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. Instead of giving up, I'm going to get on and preach the gospel. 
I'm going to get on and do this ministry. What do we learn about gospel ministry from Paul here? We learn a couple of things. We learn, first of all, how we don't do it. See, verse 2 uh, is here's what Paul needs to defend himself to answer a strong criticism. He is adamant that he does not use secret and shameful and deceitful methods in his ministry. As a matter of fact, he renounces them. He repudiates them clearly. In his relationships with the Corinthians, Paul has been open and honest. He's not resorted to deceit and trickery to win them over. And he's not distorted or twisted the word of God either. You see, that uh, the charges come about him doing that, no doubt, because he's presented the new covenant as superior to the old covenant. The covenant of Jesus is superior to the covenant of Moses. But Paul knows his Old Testament and he has taught it well. Gospel ministry is not secretive or shameful or deceptive or a distortion of God's word. Well then, how do we do gospel ministry? Verse 2 again. Gospel ministry is commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth, setting forth the truth plainly. That was the basis of Paul's work amongst the Corinthians. He reveals the truth in his life and in his gospel preaching. Whatever else we may do in ministry in terms of creative advertising and programs and great camps and days like this, the bedrock, non-negotiable, is setting forth the truth plainly. We live in a postmodern world where people say there is no absolute truth. There's truth for you and there's truth for me. And if they are different, that doesn't matter. But it does matter if life and death hangs off whether something is true or not. For example, I may say to you, the truth is, Terrigal is the most beautiful beach in Australia. Now, you may very well laugh and say, well, that may be true for you, Leslie, but for me, the truth is Cronulla is, or Coogee is, or Brighton is. And, you know, we could trade our truths about Terrigal and Cronulla back and forth. It doesn't really matter. But if you have a rare cancer and you are going to die and there is a cure, you want to know the truth about that cure. What is it? Who makes it? Where do I get it? Because that's a matter of life and death. You don't want to fluff around with what's true for you, may be true for me, may not be true for me, nonsense. Because... How we get right with God and our response to Jesus is also a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. The truth about Jesus is crucial. There is truth, a specific content of the gospel, the new covenant, and it needs to be declared to people. And that is what Paul says he does. Uh, He is going to declare it to people. Paul uses the word preaching to describe how the truth is set forth. He actually um, says, uses it by, sorry, he uses the words here, an open display of the truth. Preaching's come in for a lot of negative overtones and flack over the past years. In the 21st century, people don't want to be told, they want to discover for themselves. 
They want to have conversations. They want to go on a journey and see where that path of discovery leads them. But, you know, sometimes that thing can be a cloak for our rebellion against God. We don't like being told what to do. But God has that right. He speaks and we have to listen. And the way that God has declared that we will hear him speak is to have that truth recorded so we read the truth in the scriptures and that we hear that truth preached and declared to us by his ambassadors, by his emissaries. The preacher becomes the mouthpiece of God. It's as if the hearers are hearing the very voice of God when they, the truth is being preached. Well, Paul goes on to tell what truth gets preached and what is not. What is not preached, verse 5, for we are not preaching or proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as, a, as slaves because of Jesus. We do not preach ourselves. I think the new teachers, the super apostles, were spending a lot of time talking about their gifts and abilities, what they brought to the church life in Corinth in order to discredit Paul and look good to the Corinthians. Paul says, I don't do that. I don't talk about myself, but I'll tell you what gospel ministry is. What it is, is preaching or declaring or proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. The gospel of the glory of Christ. Sorry, uh, I need to read verse 4. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, because Jesus is God, the image of God, then he too shares God's glory. Paul says that the gospel, the good news that we preach, is about seeing Jesus as God, seeing God's glory that he will give to no other person except Jesus. And Jesus is the great end point of God's saving purposes in history. It's all about Jesus. And now that verse 5 Jesus Christ is Lord, has been described as the shortest and most comprehensive statement of Christian ministry there is. Here he tells us the method of new covenant ministry, preaching or declaring or proclaiming. He tells us the content, Jesus Christ as Lord, and he tells us the manner in which he does it. He does it as a slave or a servant. I want to spend a few minutes looking at that phrase, Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, it's a good summary of what we ought to be living and saying whenever we open our mouths. Not just that phrase repeated mindlessly over and over again, but that message, that idea ought to permeate and affect and control all that we do and in all our evangelism. It's the whole gospel in four words. Jesus means the Lord saves. So he's a saviour or he's a rescuer. Christ means God the anointed one, God's king and judge. And Lord, in essence, Jesus is God. Again, ruler and judge. What else is there to say? Saving, rescuing, which means preaching the cross implies that there is something that we which must which we must be saved from which calls for preaching of sin and judgment and the fact that Jesus is lord and king 
That makes it an urgent message. We will call on people to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins because he is a saviour and then live under his lordship because he is the king and the judge. There's a tendency in evangelism today to preach Jesus as saviour but not as Lord. To call on people to trust the Jesus that can save them but to say nothing about the king who demands their allegiance. Paul would say that's only half a gospel. Not only is it unbiblical, it also wouldn't work because Jesus can only save because he is Lord and King. Anyone less than God would be a sinner and therefore an imperfect sacrifice. Jesus' death atones for my sin and yours because he is God. We sang um, In Christ Alone here this morning. There's a line in there that says, the wrath of God is satisfied. Do you remember it? It was uh, I heard last week about a bishop in England who was doing a confirmation service at an evangelical church. And he noticed that they were singing In Christ Alone. And he said to them before the service started, I want you to change the words, the wrath of God is satisfied, to the love of God is satisfied. That's because that bishop does not believe that you, when you preach the gospel, you preach that God's wrath is satisfied. He doesn't believe that you preach judgment. What's the point of having a saviour if there's nothing to save you from, to rescue you from? You need to preach the full gospel. And thirdly, there's the manner in which Paul conducts his ministry. Remember he said at the beginning of this verse that he didn't preach himself in the content, but now he says he conducts his ministry as one who is a servant or a slave of the Corinthians. That was in stark contrast to these intruders who were conducting their ministry so as to make the Corinthians their servants. Paul is clearly reflecting uh, the attitude of Jesus who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And the same Jesus who washed his disciples' feet and then said, copy me. Paul's ministry is a model of servant leadership to this congregation. Now, lastly, why is this ministry needed? Well, gospel ministry is needed because of verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, some people found Paul's preaching obscure. Paul doesn't deny that. It was quite possible that his preaching may have seemed nonsense to some people. But it was not what he said that was obscure. It was because the hearers' minds had been veiled and blinded by Satan. That's the God of this age. So they just can't see it. But Paul's not really worried about this veiling because the veiling is God's problem. Dealing with Satan is his domain, his job. And deal with him he does. God's response to the blinding by Satan is to give people sight. Look at verse 6. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory (coughs) in the face of Jesus Christ. There's There's a great cosmic supernatural battle going on here, but the two combatants are not equal. Satan is limited in his power. He can only remove sight. He shows his true colours. He's a petty tyrant. But God restores sight. He is the sovereign creator at work. Do you remember back in Genesis 1, God said, let light shine out of darkness. And there was physical light in physical darkness. Now, now... He says it again and again and again and again. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, God has said, let light shine in the darkness. He rips the veil away and light shines in our hearts and we see the glory of God. Where do we see it? In the face of Christ. When did you first see the glory of God in the face of Christ. You didn't see it literally, but you saw it figuratively as Jesus Christ, Lord and Saviour, was preached to you, whether as a toddler by your mum or by or as a recalcitrant adult. You came to know Christ because the veil was removed and in him you saw the glory of God. But Paul literally did see the glory of God on the face of Christ on the Damascus Road. That event changed his life and has made him who he is now, a servant and a slave. (coughs) What are the implications for all of this as we proclaim the gospel to our friends and family and neighbours? Let me spell some out. (coughs) Firstly, we don't give up Because it's God's gospel, it's God's ministry. It's his ministry of the new covenant that he planned before the creation and brought to fulfilment, (coughs) sorry, I've just got a frog in my throat, at just the right time. It's God alone who removes the veil from people's eyes, who gives them spiritual sight, who shines light in their hearts. You know how there are always people that you come across? Maybe they're in your family. And we invest lots of time and energy in them. We explain the gospel in such simple terms, but it's like water off a duck's back. And we beat ourselves up over it, thinking, why don't they understand what's wrong with me? I became a Christian when I was 15. I'm now 64, so almost 50 years ago. And I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I went home, Uh, quite different, obviously. My parents saw it and they said, what's happened to you? You didn't want to go anywhere near that church before and now you spend all your time up there. And I said, I've become a Christian, Mum and Dad. And they said, what do you mean you've become a Christian? This is a Christian nation, a Christian society. We're C of E. We're we're Christians. (coughs) And I said, well, I am, but you're not. And unless you trust Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Now, you know, as a 14-year-old, nah, man, that was so arrogant and uh, stupid and ridiculous to say, but I said it. Now, my dad became a Christian probably about 10 years later. My mum died <clears throat> three years ago, 
And up until the point that she died, she kept saying to me, the only thing I remember you telling me is that I was a pagan and I was going to hell. Now, for 47 years, I had preached the gospel to her again and again and again. And it hurt me so much inside. I'd sometimes go back to my room and cry when I'd be visiting her, saying, why doesn't she see it? And I had to come to that point where I saw that it's God who takes the, God, takes the veil away. It wasn't up to me to do that. I couldn't beat myself up over the fact that I wasn't preaching the gospel well to her. I could beat myself up by the fact that she wasn't listening or wasn't, uh, um, or sorry, not beating myself up, but I was sad. But that is God's job, and I can't take responsibility for that. So I want you to hear this, my sisters. Since we have this ministry of the new covenant where God shines lights in people's hearts, we do not give up. You and I are not responsible for results. That's God's responsibility. You and I are called to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of a powerful God. Second implication, we won't give up. We can't give up because of what he has done for us personally. In verse 6, God in his mercy has made his light shine in our hearts, lifted the veil from our blinded minds, so that we have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see Jesus. We see what he did for us. We see what he's still doing for us. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus, that sight will take you to heaven. Therefore, since, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Thirdly, Don't lose confidence in the methods of biblical gospel ministry. Over the years, I've come across some pretty wacky methods of Christian ministry. There's a Methodist church in the United States that advertised in the local paper that if you came to church this particular Sunday, you would get a coupon to buy half-price groceries at the local supermarket. In England, there's a drive-in church where you don't have to get out of your car. The service is broadcast over a PA system into the car park. Uh, A few years ago, a church in Liverpool, which was about half an hour from where I used to live, offered to everyone who came to church on the 13th of October a cross-shaped bottle of holy water from the River Jordan. And it was holy because it had been prayed over by the pastor and it could be used to bless your home, your workplace and even your car. There's a church in Auckland that meets around cafe tables and they're encouraged to pray with your hands around a cup of coffee as a way of experiencing the spirit as warmth in your spirituality. Now what those churches are doing are responding to what they believe about Christianity. They believe that the Christian church is in serious decline. That we're only a small remnant who struggle to convince people that Jesus is Lord. So there's the temptation to lose heart and to give up, to give up being biblical, to look for ways to make the message more appealing, to make an impact on the society around us. But according to Paul, our primary agenda is not to be noticed by the world around us, but to hold up Jesus. And not just the powerful Jesus, but Jesus crucified. 
And that's the sticking point, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, preaching a a crucified king is foolishness to those around us. But preaching and declaring is the New Testament model of how to build a church. That's hard, isn't it? When you're at a small church that's plugging away at gospel preaching and you're just fairly small and ordinary and a few suburbs away, an attractive pastor and his wife are heading up a very lively church with a magnificent band that offers empowering worship and miracles every Sunday morning and night. And you hear how they offer prosperity and health and success in life and people are flocking there. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they want those things? Why wouldn't they respond to that? You know, that's really no great miracle, you know. You need to remember that the greatest miracle are changed lives. Lives that are transformed by the Spirit from selfish, rebellious, immoral citizens of the kingdom of darkness into holy, righteous, serving members members of the kingdom of the glorious Son. Do not lose confidence in the right methods of gospel ministry. I'm just reading at the moment a wonderful book that I know some of you have probably read here because I, I know Vic is reading it, called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert about a, a, a feminist, lesbian professor at a university who became a Christian. And she did not become a Christian by any of those wonderful things. She became a Christian because she heard the gospel and it's changed her life amazingly. That's the miracle that we've got to look for. Well, we may very well think if this if this ministry is so glorious and we can have great confidence in God and the gospel such that we will not give up, Why is our experience so different? Why is it so fraught with difficulties? Why is it so hard? Well, verses 7 to 11 stands in stark contrast to the glory theme of the last chapter and a half. Why? The answer is in verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. In other words, it's God's deliberate policy to put a wonderful message into clay jars so that he will get the glory. In the first century, there were millions of cheap clay pots. They were like the margarine containers or plastic bags for us. They were easily produced, easily broken, nothing to look at, quite disposable. You wouldn't expect to keep your valuable diamond rings in a plastic bag, would you? But Paul says that's exactly what God has done when it comes to the gospel. He's entrusted the fathomless treasure of the glorious message of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's entrusted it to people of clay, people of dust, people like him and you and me, easily crushed, Knocked down, buffeted, fragile, weak, easily discouraged. So that when people do get converted, there's no way that I can say, well, 
the message is glorious, but look at the messenger who brought it. What do you expect? No, rather, I have to say, when you look at the messenger, how weak and pathetic she is, you have to ask, how on earth did something so wonderful happen? We are clay pots, women of dust. It's obvious that the power belongs to God and not to us. It's God's wisdom to do it like that. Ask yourselves, how do you recognise your clay potness, your weakness, your frailty? Is it a struggle with depression or a difficult person in your life who really tests your patience or some circumstance that's proving a trial for you? Or some debilitating physical condition that drags you down. Or maybe it's just getting older. For me, my clay potness is seen in my sleeplessness. Sometimes I can go, not get to sleep till three or four o'clock in the morning and I toss and I turn and I'm so tired the next day. And that's my clay potness. And verses 8 and 9 are an illustration of this principle. Look what he says there. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not but not destroyed. See, Paul's not afraid to own up to his clay potness. He's emotionally honest as he declares the problems he's had. These are four examples of what it's like to be a clay pot. Paul says he and his friends have been hard-pressed. He hasn't known how to cope, like he's been boxed into a corner. He's perplexed. He doesn't understand himself. He's, he's at a loss to understand what's going on. He's persecuted. His enemies are all around him. He's struck down. Is that physical or emotional? I don't know. He has talked a lot about being beaten up and put in prison. That's what it's like to have treasure in clay pots, bruised and broken. But each one of those problems is balanced with a but not. Did you notice that? Did you notice the but nots? And the but nots tell us that God's all-surpassing power is at work limiting the carnage. You see, let me see if I've got it here. You've probably got it there. He's hard-pressed, but not crushed. He's perplexed, but not in despair. He's persecuted, but not abandoned. He's struck down, but not destroyed. See, the first four, the one on that side, are evidence of being clay pots. The second four, four are evidence of God's all-surpassing power. Yes, living the Christian life is a costly exercise, physically and emotionally. And we're constantly being reminded of our frailties and our weaknesses. But it's also a wonderful privilege at the same time to experience God at work in us and in our circumstance, to see his power at work. See, what we are seeing here is a cross-resurrection-shaped ministry. Look at verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
For we who live are always being given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, in us, but life in you. See, uh, we have a cross-resurrection shaped ministry. And, and again, verses 8 and 9 are the illustration of this principle. The four problems, the hard-pressed, etc., are examples of death, particularly carrying the death of Jesus in his body. For Paul, these are the physical and emotional pain associated with being a minister of the new covenant. For Paul, it's what it cost him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was hated, beaten up. And it's what it costs you and I to be servants of Christ. What have you given up in order to serve Christ? A life to call your own? Where you call the shots and make all the decisions? You've given up a career where everything is sacrificed to succeed? You've given up retirement ease, and if you come to the seminar on growing old with grace, you'll see what I mean. Uh, There is the misunderstanding or abuse from your family and friends. Maybe you've given up fabulous family relationships because they shun you. There are some missionaries over in uh, Cambodia at the moment um, who, when they were first going to Cambodia... They had uh, a small child, a, uh, and, and about six months old or something like that. And the grandparents took out a lawsuit to try to prevent them taking their grandchild to an Asian country. Now that caused enormous friction in the family, tension. That's the cost of serving Christ for that couple. But the four but-nots are evidence of life, of God's resurrection power in our bodies, just like God's power raised Jesus to life. When Paul does not succumb to these crushing problems, it's evidence that the life of Jesus is also revealed in his body. And just like Jesus' death meant eternal life for humanity, so death is at work and in Paul, in the co- that is the cost of ministry, means life for the Corinthians. Let me just see if I can explain. Oh, no, I've got the wrong one. Um, I'll just go there. Um, it, it's, in your, it's in your book, isn't it? So you can see that, that diagram there. Death leads to life. That's the principle here. Death of Jesus leads to life for humanity. You get that? The death of Christ in Paul, those that fourfold distress, those troubles that he had, that's the death of Christ in Paul, the costs of being a servant of Christ, means that he also sees the life of Christ in himself, the four resurrection but nots. But also, the death In Paul, because he suffered, means that it is life for the Corinthians. They get converted. You see that there in verse 12? So death works in us, but life in you. Through Paul's struggles and troubles in ministry, which are life like dying, life has come to the Corinthians. Open Doors is an organisation that uh, 
uh, tracks persecution for Christians across the world. And their uh, world watch list has ranked North Korea as the number one persecutor of Christians eight years in a row. North Korean Christians face, the, face absolutely horrific persecution. Uh, foreign countries can barely get any inside information. You know how closed it is, uh, let alone pr- be able to provide any help. But in that place, God's people are systematically pursued and crushed. And to the people in North Korea, it appears that evil is winning. One of the things that the government does is to test chemical weapons on the lowest class in society, and that class is mostly Christians because they refuse to worship King Jong-il as God. Several years ago, a government official was issued a written order to collect a Christian family and to observe the effect of lethal chemicals on them. To his surprise, their death was peaceful. As the chemicals were applied, the parents looked after their children. They stroked them and hugged them and sang to them. And the peaceful way they died shocked the official. He saw their hope in God. He saw their love for their children. Now, how do we know this is true? Because after they died, that official became a Christian and defected, escaping to China with the written policies that the government was, was issuing. Where is God in North Korea? He's right there. He was with that family in their total humility and weakness, giving them resurrection power to trust him to the end. And that communist government official saw the truth of verses 8 to 12 of this chapter. He saw it lived out in their lives. And the evil in him was conquered. Their death meant life for him. The silent expression of of the trust of a dying Christian family was more powerful than the clenched fist of communism. He was God's power made visible in absolute weakness. And may that encourage you today. You may only see the costs, the predicaments, the difficulties, the discouragements in your Christian life and service. But for someone, it is life. Sweet, precious life. Do you give up time to teach scripture? That is maybe life for a child. Or think about the neighbour who watches you like a hawk when she knows that life is tough for you and you trust and you don't grumble and she's impressed with that. That's life for her. Because you serve a master who carries a cross, who carried a cross, but now reigns on high, your life and service will have a cross-resurrection shape to it as well. Well, Paul finishes this section in verses 13 to 15 with three responses to what he's experienced in this death-life ministry. He knows and believes. Ah, Since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore we speak. We know that the one who raised Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. So he knows because he knows that God can raise people from the dead just like he raised Jesus, then he has great trust in that great God. Paul is in no doubt that God's all-surpassing power will raise him at the end. 
He also speaks. This experience of deliverance from death has not, as his critics claimed, made him lose heart or give up. Rather, it strengthened him to go on speaking, to go on preaching the gospel. And thirdly, Paul wants thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. How will that happen when more and more people come to understand the grace of God? He knows God's power. He believes it to be true. He speaks of it so that praise will go to God. So what do we do in response to this chapter? Just like Paul, keep putting one foot after another. Recognise that you are not superwoman, that you are not impervious to struggles and disappointments in the Christian life, that Christian service and Christian ministry sucks you dry. You give yourself to others, they take and they don't thank you. People take you for granted. You share the gospel and people think you're weird or that you aren't as fr- and they aren't as friendly with you as before or worse, they reject you. It's a struggle. But Paul did not give up. He kept on struggling. Every morning, he would wake up, he'd get out of bed, and he'd put one foot after the other. That's not always like that, is it? Sometimes there is great joy and exhilaration in the Christian life. But most of the time, it's hard, and you keep on putting one foot after another. Because there's every reason to do that. Because the gospel is glorious and you and I see Jesus. And it's God's job to make everyone else see it. It's not ours. And in the midst of my weakness, as I'm daily dying, as I follow in the footsteps of my Saviour who carried a cross, resurrection power is mine. That's the miracle. And I'll never forget that heaven is coming. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for this passage and for all that it teaches us. We thank you that you reveal yourself and Jesus in this word. And we thank you for the, the example of the Apostle Paul who struggled daily, who knew what it was like to die for you but also knew what it was to experience your great, all-surpassing power. Father, we thank you that we can look at Paul and we can see our own struggles and put them into perspective. We can see that your resurrection power is available to us as well. Father, for those of us here who are really struggling today, with weakness and frailty, with disappointment, with discouragement, with depression, whatever it is, we pray that we will see your all-surpassing power at work in our lives and that the glory will go to you. Father, thank you that you ripped the veil from our eyes and that we saw Jesus. And we thank you that we are heading to heaven. There will be an end to this one day. And we look forward to that. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Leslie. That was so encouraging. Already I feel like not just plodding one foot in front of the other, but running towards Jesus.
Um, I would like to invite up Hannah Cook.